0: Welcome to episode 101, a 34-part episode on Catholicism 101, the foundations of our Catholic faith. These episodes originally premiered on YouTube. You can find the original video linked in the description to this episode, as well as a discussion guide for your benefit and whoever you might be listening with. A friendly reminder and invitation to please, if you have not yet done so, please rate and review this podcast. It helps other people find it. It's such a great way to get this podcast out there and for you to share it with others. But remember, the highest compliment you could pay this podcast and myself is to share this episode or any episode on social media. And you can do that by simply posting it on your story or tagging us in a post. At ManaFoodForThought is our Instagram handle. At ManaF4T is our Twitter and our Facebook page is just Mana Food for Thought. You can find all of that on our website, manafoodforthought.com, as well as all of our previous content. And if you'd like to become a financial sponsor for as little as $1 a month, you can do that by clicking on the Patreon tab on our website. If you have not yet done so, I really want to invite you to check out our friends at Thrive Coffee. It's coffee with a mission. Their website is drinkthrive.org, and they are a nonprofit craft coffee roaster in Richmond, Virginia. They use coffee to create careers and training opportunities for individuals with disabilities. Uh, They ship nationwide, their beans are locally roasted in small batches, they make blends, and three bags sold pays for one hour of work for their differently abled employees. So go to drinkthrive.org, buy a few bags, and if you use promo code MANA M-A-N-N-A, at checkout, you will get 15% off your first order. With that being said, enjoy the next installment in episode 101, a 34-part episode on Catholicism 101. Enjoy. (laughs) A few years ago, I started getting obsessed with true crime podcasts. I find the entire investigative process fascinating, especially ones that look back at these cold cases that were unsolved and tried to review the evidence with fresh eyes, re-interview those who were involved and use things like modern technology to try and find those who were responsible. And the crazy thing is that some of them actually do after so many years, sometimes decades, They solve these cases that had been cold for so long. And it brings me to a question, a question that I think is appropriate for today because this episode premieres on Easter Sunday. Happy Easter. And the question is, how do you prove something definitively happened? Like without a doubt, something actually definitively happened that you could be totally convinced if you were not there to see it. Well, I think what compels us and what compels people in these crime podcasts, what compels us to know that Jesus really rose from the dead is two things, evidence and eyewitness testimony. So first of all, what evidence is there that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead? Now, the Catechism says this, that the mystery of Christ's resurrection is a real event with manifestations that were historically verified as the New Testament bears witness. So we know definitively that a man named Jesus, Yeshua, of a town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee in modern-day Israel, really lived and existed during the reign of King Herod, during the reign of Emperor Caesar Augustus of the Roman Empire. We have historical evidence of that. We have the four Gospels, first of all, and they don't spare any embarrassing or difficult details. Think about this for a moment. Let's say if the apostles or the early church wanted to fake an account of the resurrection they would not have made themselves look so bad. They would not have included details of how they abandoned Jesus, how they never knew what the heck he was talking about, how they betrayed him, how they denied him, how they hid while he was suffering and being executed. And also the gospels, all four of them report that the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Now, if this was fabricated, if this was a lie, they never would have chose this detail because it doesn't prove their case. Because at the time, the testimony of women was not admissible in a court of law. So if they were lying, they would have picked a much better lie. And they would have made themselves look probably a whole lot better. But in reality, we have over 66,000 manuscripts that either predict the resurrection prophetically before Jesus lived, or they recount it after it happened. Many have been carbon dated and they are authentic to the time before Jesus or the first few centuries after. That's 66,000 Old Testament, Ancient, or New Testament and early church writings that all point to the validity of Christ's life and resurrection. So for comparison, there are around 1,000 ancient and medieval manuscripts of Homer's Odyssey and no one doubts that he existed that he wrote the odyssey that he lived 7 to 800 years before jesus and those that amount of manuscripts and those manuscripts themselves they're deemed valid enough that i and many of you read the odyssey in high school as part of our education so if it's good enough for homer there's no reason we can possibly discount the mountain of evidence historically for the resurrection and say that that is also not more than good enough on top of those manuscripts and included within them are actually non-Christian and non-biblical historical evidence. Things like the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus and the Roman historian Tacitus and others that recorded the fact that Jesus lived, that he died by crucifixion, and that he was worshiped as a God or as the Christ, which is the Greek word for the Messiah. Now this is at a time when historians only ever wrote about huge major world events, significant things about rulers changing power or conquests. So to write about a poor insignificant carpenter, if there wasn't really something historically going on, that is a huge amount of evidence. And apart from that, we actually know a lot about the time of Jesus historically. Think about this, Stonehenge and the Great Pyramids of Egypt, they had already been built for 2,500 years before Christ lived. The philosophers Socrates, Aristotle and Plato, they had already lived and written. Alexander the Great's empire had already risen and fallen. Julius Caesar had already been assassinated. This is not some obscure myth or legend in the distant throngs of history that we know very little about. No, this is a historical fact because we have evidence. Now beyond the evidence, remember the second thing we need and that is helpful to prove something definitively happened if we weren't there, is eyewitness testimony. So how many witnesses would you need to agree in order to prove something happened? So for instance, at this time, the Jewish law indicated that at least two witnesses had to come forward in a court of law to prove something happened or that a crime had taken place. Jewish law says in scripture, one witness alone shall not stand against someone in regard to any crime or any offense that may have been committed. A charge shall stand only on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a hostile witness rises against someone to accuse that person of wrongdoing, the two parties in the dispute shall appear in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and judges in office at that time, and the judges must investigate it thoroughly. If the witness is a false witness and has falsely accused the other, you shall do to the false witness just as the false witness planned to do to the other. Thus you shall purge the evil from your midst. So if a witness was found to be lying, they would receive the punishment intended for the crime they were falsely accusing someone of. If their testimony was found valid, the witnesses actually, it says elsewhere in scripture, they actually had to be the ones to carry out the execution. So for instance, if the person was to be stoned to death, the accusers and the witnesses had to throw the first stones. So these were serious laws of justice to ensure people were not tempted to lie, lest they risk their own death. or Have to carry out the killing of an innocent person by their own hands. That is why they needed at least two eyewitnesses to have testimonies that agreed. But let's say for you, how many witnesses would convince you? Two, three, ten, twenty, one hundred? If one hundred people all had testimonies that agreed completely, would that convince you that what they were saying was true? Well for us, biblical manuscripts and historical documents report that there were over 500 individuals who saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead. Over 500. And there were countless witnesses to his crucifixion and death that he actually lived in history, because it happened during the week of Passover when the city of Jerusalem's population was believed to have swelled from about 50,000 to around 200,000 or more. So we know definitively he died, and we know definitively that he rose. Furthermore, Jesus' body or his remains, they've never been found or claimed to be possessed by anyone anywhere. The claim that Jesus' body was moved or kept secret by the apostles to create the church and gain influence, that has no supporting evidence. Because first of all, the Gospel of Matthew actually reports that there was a Roman seal placed on Jesus' tomb, meaning that there were always guards on duty, and anyone who touched the tomb or attempted to tamper with it would be killed says the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said sir we remember that this impostor while still alive said after 3 days i will be raised up give orders then that the grave be secured until the 3rd day lest his disciples come and steal him and say to the people he's been raised from the dead this last imposture would be worse than the first pilate said to them the guard is yours go secure it as best you can so they went and secured the tomb by fixing a seal to the stone and setting the guard It would not have been possible to fake. And even if it was, look at what happened to the apostles. First of all, they look really bad in the Gospels, right? Denying Jesus, running away. I don't know about you, but I would not have put those details and stories on my resume. Then when the apostles receive the Holy Spirit and are finally able to do what Jesus commissioned them to do, do they gain power, influence, and prestige? No. Every single one of them is persecuted for their faith and for their testimony that Jesus rose from the dead and was the Son of God. All 12 of them, except for the Apostle John, are killed for the good news they are spreading about Jesus. Not a single one of them changed their story. When they were at the moment of death, when they were given a chance to deny Christ and say it was all a lie, or to renounce him to save their lives, not a single one of them did. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was also crucified. James was executed by sword. John was boiled in oil and eventually survived and died of old age. Bartholomew was skinned alive. Thomas was stabbed by by spears. All of the others, they were beheaded, stoned, thrown to lions, or killed in other horrific ways, and not one of them changed their story. Not one of them died for a lie. If it was a lie, I certainly, at the end of my life, would have been like, okay, JK, just kidding, not real. But no, instead, others carried on and continued to be persecuted on and off for roughly the first 300 years of the church's existence. They did it because they believed, without a shadow of a doubt, that it was all true. Because many of them saw that it was true. There was too much evidence not to believe it. There is more evidence for this single historical event than virtually any other before it and for many centuries after. And arguably, no event has been more influential in human history. In an article written by a scientist and physician, Dr. S. Joshua Swamidas, he put it this way he said, Without the physical resurrection, 2,000 years of history are left begging for an explanation, like a movie missing a key scene. No other event in all recorded history has reached so far across national, ethnic, religious, linguistic, cultural, political, and geographic borders. The message spread with unreasonable success across the world. During just the first few centuries, it spread without political or military power, prevailing against the ruthless efforts of dedicated, organized, and violent opposition. How did a small band of disempowered Jews in an occupied and insignificant territory of ancient Rome accomplish this unequaled act? What happened so many years ago that reframed all human history? We know the answer, it was the resurrection and that the resurrection really happened. This is the central event of human history. It's why the Gregorian calendar was developed and centered everything that we have done in history to be arranged BC before Christ and AD, Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. Everything points to this singular event. If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. The resurrection, above all, constitutes the confirmation of all Christ's works and teachings. All truths, even those most inaccessible to human reason, find their justification if Christ, by his resurrection, has given the definitive proof of his divine authority, which he had promised. That's from the Catechism, paragraph 651. If if you cannot deny that Jesus rose from the dead, then everything he taught and the church he established all has to be true. You can debate and argue about any number of church teachings, but if the resurrection happened, we cannot deny the truth of everything that sprang forth from it. This is the reason for our joy, the reason for our hope, that Jesus rose. He promises us new life. As Pope John Paul II often paraphrased St. Augustine, We are a resurrection people, and our song is Alleluia. Not only that, Jesus' resurrection was a victory over sin and death. He has saved us and opened up the gates of heaven for us to be with him in perfect love, joy, unity, and peace for all eternity. There is nothing we need to fear, worry, or be anxious about, because our God, our Father in heaven, loves us so much that he sent Jesus. That's why the verse that's quoted most often in the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. The resurrection is a real event. It embodies the freedom we have in Jesus Christ when we accept the salvation he is offering us. Our sin separates us from God, but the resurrection can heal our brokenness and separation. Jesus went through the worst possible form of execution and torture in human history. So no matter what you are going through or suffering, no matter what sin is plaguing you or stealing your joy, no matter what grief or loss is weighing on your heart, Jesus rose so that you can rise from it too. But you cannot do it on your own. We can only experience resurrection when we invite Jesus into our mess, into our moments of suffering and darkness, and allow him to carry our cross with us, to save us. We know he can because we know definitively, without a shadow of a doubt, that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia.